Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. We'll also be joined in this episode by Dan Reed, who will be preaching at Grace this Sunday. Together, we'll be talking about why you should always take the order of worship home with you after a worship service, We'll share some light bulb moments from seminary education and talk with Dan about his sermon text for Sunday and how this New Testament passage from John chapter 3 connects to Old Testament history in some interesting ways. When we talk about liturgy at grace, the particular rhythm of our worship services, One of the points I try to make is this. The elements of worship are also building blocks in the life of discipleship. Think of it this way. In a service, we're going to hear God's call, then answer. We'll pray and we'll sing praise. We will confess our sins. We read and meditate on scripture. We give offerings. We confess our faith. We commune with God. These are all things you do as an everyday disciple. So the liturgy is forming us to live day in and day out as disciples of Christ. That's why it's so important to take what happens in worship with you when you go. And I'm not speaking metaphorically here. There's a practical way to take it with you. And that's what Cameron and I are going to talk about now. Cameron, I notice you've brought into the studio your order of worship, and it is a thrill for me to see that because after our services, oftentimes I will see the order of worship from the service left behind by people afterwards, and I always feel like it's an important thing to take with you. So I'm glad that that you walked mm-hmm. out of the sanctuary Sunday with your order of worship in tow. Do you ever find yourself referring back to it during the week? I do. I have actually been bringing it to a small group recently. So it's been a very helpful resource for us as we sit down on, we've been meeting Thursdays, and we use it as sort of the the starting point for our conversation. Oh, great. And so it'll, sometimes it'll be talking about the, the sermon or sometimes it won't. It'll be something else kind of like almost what we've done in this podcast, talking about certain elements within the order of worship, but it really helps focus because you could talk about anything. So this gives us at least a, a handful of, of good the, theology to really talk through. Right. You know, I, I think one of my passions, let's say, related to liturgy has been the way that you can use that liturgy in your own devotional life after a service. And so one thing I always encourage people to do is to take the order of worship with them and then throughout the week, go back and reread the scripture passages, reread the different parts of the service, uh, pray the prayers over again, use these prayers in your own prayer life, uh, reflect on Uh, what we heard and even sing the songs. Oftentimes I find myself having the songs that we sang in my mind. And so it's nice to be able to go back. And even as someone like me who doesn't read music to, to go back and just look and, and be reminded of how we worshiped. And the interesting thing is, of course, you can also prepare in advance 
because the order of worship is available prior to the services. Usually in our weekly emails, we'll have a link to the order of worship for the upcoming service. You can do it that way as well. Yeah, I found that really helpful, especially on the Sundays where I'm going to be leading music. I like to just be, of course, you've sent you've sent me it in advance, but I like to be prepared, seeing what's going to be coming and prepare my heart really to receive the word from the Lord that's that's here in this order of worship. So it's it's been really helpful for me. That's good. I like the idea of preparation because one of my ideals is to walk into the sanctuary before a service and find people already there preparing themselves, maybe in prayer, reflection, looking over the order of worship, which is something I always do before a service, just kind of flip through and remind myself of everything that's about to happen so that when we're worshiping, I'm not thinking about the the logistics. You know, I'm not thinking about do I need to be standing or sitting or uh, what what you know words will we be saying or reading. It's all familiar, and so in the moments I can be focused on the meaning of worship, not just the mechanics of worship. One question I have about preparing for worship would be, isn't it just enough to let God address us in the moment? Isn't it enough just to show up and to receive whatever the pastor has for me? Or, or is there some kind of actual necessity for preparation? What, what do you think about that? That's a great question because, you know, obviously, yeah, I want to say it is enough. Like I, I would never... I would never say, hey, don't bother coming to worship if you haven't prepared enough in advance. At the same time, though, I think there's a lesson that we can learn from being uh, lifelong students. If you go to the lecture already having read the assigned reading, already having thought about the subject matter, when you experience the lecture in the classroom and you participate in the discussion, it's so much deeper and and you get so much more out of it. And I think there is something similar that, that happens in worship in the sense that if we prepare our hearts and we enter into the experience without like a need to catch up or a need to orient ourselves, like we're already there so that we're focused on what we're doing. I think that is like a way of, um, reducing the barriers or reducing the drag so that you're really getting the most out of worship. Like you're really engaging as much as possible. So absolutely it's possible to have a life changing experience of worship at the drop of a dime with, with no preparation, but you'd be surprised how much that, that preparation and that reflection and that prayer beforehand changes the experience, especially I would say for people who feel like they're not getting much out of worship or they're just going through the motions or something like that. You know, if you feel like you're, you're disengaged and, and it's not really speaking to you, I think that's often directly related to whether or not you've prepared your heart, whether or not you've been in prayer, whether or not you've reflected on the words that we're speaking. And so my encouragement would be, especially for people maybe whose habit has been to be very unprepared, 
to focus on that. And, and, and it's easy. Just start by next time you come to a service, bring the order of worship home with you. And then during the week, just look it over again and start thinking about it and, and using those words you see in your prayer. Sounds great. We're delighted this week to be joined in the studio by Dan Reed. Dan is a seminary student under care of our presbytery as he studies for ordination. This summer, he's going to transition from part-time to full-time study, and he'll also come on board at Grace as our Director of Discipleship and Education. Since Dan is going to be preaching at Grace this Sunday, we want to talk with him about his sermon. But first, we had a little bit of a roundtable discussion. So I have a rare opportunity here in this studio because it's a room full of theology students. So Dan Reed is here with Cameron and I, and we've just been talking about our different experiences in seminary. And uh, as we've mentioned in the podcast before, Cameron graduated from Princeton. How long ago, Cameron, was that? 2018 was when I graduated. Okay, 2018. So a little while ago, uh, not not too terribly long ago. No. And then Dan is actually a, a seminarian at this moment. In fact, Dan, you just came to us straight out of Greek class. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We are doing participles today. Participles. So if if Dan seems a little bit tired or or beaten up, you'll know it's because Greek has been foremost in his mind. So I thought it'd be interesting since we're all together, maybe just to share one insight or mind-blowing experience from theological education. Because, of course, a lot of people come to faith and grow up in church, but never actually go to seminary or take a, a class in theology and might wonder what kind of experiences uh, you have when you're doing that. And so I know there's a lot of different things that you could mention, but I'm just going to ask each of you if you'd share just like one thing that really uh, struck you or surprised you during your theological education. Cameron, why don't you start off? Sure. Well, my f- formal theological education actually began as an undergrad at the University of Sioux Falls here in town. And I studied theology and philosophy. It was a theology slash philosophy major. And I enjoyed both halves. I remember taking classes in Bible and classes in ethics or some other kind of philosophy. And I remember feeling a little bit sad when I graduated that I had to leave philosophy behind because I was going to seminary to study just theology. So I thought, But the revelation that I had at seminary was actually that a lot of the time philosophy and theology are kind of partners having the same conversation. They're they're in dialogue a lot of the times, at least historically speaking, that's been the case. And so twofold lesson. The one is that sometimes that's a good thing Mm -hmm. and that we can learn something about a theologian like Calvin based off of his historical context and his relationship with Plato or Aristotle. On the other hand, sometimes it can be a bad thing because obviously theologians are not just philosophers and philosophers are doing work 
without some of the assumptions that that a theologian would. So when we talked about baptism not long ago, I think we came across one of what we could call the bad examples where we talked about transubstantiation and said that that was essentially scholastic theologians applying Aristotle to the problem of the sacrament and and kind of uh, doing philosophy instead of theology. And, And I often think of that too, when we have our endless debates about free will and predestination, you know, that a lot of, a lot of what Christians say about free will isn't based on some scriptural teaching. It's based on a philosophical belief system or set of assumptions, that sort of thing. So those are bad examples. Can you think of any good examples of where philosophy and theology um, overlap or inform each other? I mean, well, so it's funny you bring up the the Catholic example because I think Thomas Aquinas is actually sometimes a very good example of somebody that can do theology and philosophy at the same time. And, and he did a lot of that in his major work. One specific example is actually back to Calvin. He, I can't remember where in his institutes, but he uses Aristotle's four causes and applies it to his doctrine of salvation in this really unique way. I don't remember exactly all how it works, but he's using the thoughts of Aristotle and kind of sees how it works out biblically as well. So I, I could think right. maybe that's uh, at least an interesting way to think about that it. That is a good example. And of course, in the Westminster Confession, when you look at the third chapter on the decrees, it uses language about causation that, uh, that right, probably does owe a debt to Aristotle. So uh, sometimes applying Aristotle can be positive, sometimes negative, depends on the context. But no, that, it's a fascinating point that people may not appreciate that sometimes reading theology is a lot like reading philosophy and, and vice versa, both for good and ill. Yeah. One last thing I'll say is I think we often see the theologians being influenced by philosophers and rather than the other way around. One thing I realized in seminary is that it sometimes is the other way around, where the the philosophers were influenced by the theologians. Kant, for example, Immanuel Kant was really influenced by Martin Luther, of all people, and his understanding of free will. And Martin Luther's theology ends up having a big impact on him, who has a big impact on the rest of the, the Western um, approach to philosophy. So, it goes both ways. Now, it's fascinating. We probably won't go deeper into Immanuel Kant in this episode, but but uh, we'll file it away for a future commentary. Dan, what about you and your experience of theological education? What's what's a mind-blowing realization you've come across? Yeah, I mean, I don't have Kant and Aristotle on the mind. I, mine's a little bit more general. I've been doing seminary a little bit. Uh, it's, I, I've come to it later. Uh, I've been doing it on the side. I, I've been teaching full time. Uh, I started a seminary right as Cameron was graduating. So, um, but I've been doing a couple courses at a time. Uh, and I've just been amazed by how all the courses really fit together. Uh, whether it's hermeneutics and you're looking at how to read your Bible, uh, you're looking at, you know, some of the biblical languages or biblical theology or, um, you know, even history. It, they, they all go together. They all work together in the history of God's redemption and the plan of salvation from the Old Testament to the New. I know the ladies are doing their Bible study on the unfolding mystery uh, by Clowney. And Christine and I have had a lot of conversations about 
how the Old Testament, the New Testament tie together and how it's the same God and how God is, there's a continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testament. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful masterpiece that God has put together in his word. You bring up a great point too, which is the way that these experiences uh, lead you to want to share them. You know, maybe one of the most frustrating things about theological education is that uh, you were there in the classroom and and now you're surrounded by people who weren't there and you somehow want to bring them along on that journey and and help them. So I can relate to, you know, your story of of talking to your wife about these things, because for me, that connection between Old and New Testament is such a huge uh like the mystery that was there in plain sight. Mm -hmm. And once you see it, you can't stop trying to like force it on everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Our gracious wives. I know uh, my, yeah, Christine, I will get an earful when I get home from my classes a lot of times. And I, I can tell that she's not as interested as, as I am. (laughs) Right. Right. It's hard. It's hard for anyone to be as interested as, as you are in the moment, but it's, it's gracious of them to, to uh, placate us. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think, my example of kind of a mind-blowing experience came really early. You know, uh, like Dan, I was later in life drawn into seminary. And when I started, I was fresh out of grad school. I had just done my creative writing degree. I had no intention of really finishing seminary, let alone going into ministry at the time. But I was fascinated by the ideas of theology and I wanted to understand more. And so my first class was a class on doctrine of salvation. And at the time, even though I was at a reformed seminary, I was a Baptist deacon. And I would have described myself probably as a reformed Baptist of some kind at that time. And so I kept waiting to have the argument about baptism. And as the semester went on, Uh, Nobody fought with me, and I grew confident that they were afraid. You know, they were afraid to tangle with me because they knew I was going to win that argument. And and finally, at the end of the semester, I I was like, I'm going to miss my shot. You know, we're never going to have the fight if I don't precipitate the conflict. And so I went up to the professor, and I just started throwing out, you know, this this. I guess, like red meat, you know, for him to seize on. And he was smiling and I think could see what I was, I was doing, but was very gracious the whole time. And, you know, he acknowledged that he hadn't been trying to beat me over the head on baptism, that he saw himself as, as a, a person who was there to assist everyone in getting a little higher up the mountain. And he wasn't there to fight you. He was there to help you understand a little more. And as we spoke, and as I thought about our conversation afterwards, I realized that he lacked a characteristic that until that moment, I'd always associated with sort of faithful Christian leaders, and it was combativeness. He wasn't hostile. He wasn't mad at people who didn't believe what he believed. And it puzzled me at first. Like he knew we disagreed, but he wasn't coming after me. And um, I realized that he had confidence, that he actually believed in the truth of 
scripture and how he was reading scripture so that he could engage with people like me and not feel any fear or or anxiety you know and, and all too often in christianity we we're fearful and anxious and that results in hostility you know this sort of culture war mindset or it results in you know despair and we don't want to talk about our faith at all and at the root of that i think is just a fear that it's not true you know a fear that they're going to win and here was a guy who just didn't have that fear you know he was confident and it made him gracious and after that of all the things he taught me and he taught me a lot but of of all of them this was the one that changed my direction and i was resolved that's the kind of christian i want to be i want to be the kind of person who has the confidence and the simple faith not the the fear and the hostility and the arrogance that goes along with it and for me that was mind blowing so <clears throat> How do you think how do you think that we get there? You've come a long way since then. How how do you think that you get rid of the fear if you do have a kind of a fear and acquire graciousness and confidence instead? The answer is probably different for different people. Sure. You know, sanctification is complicated that way, but for me personally, recognizing the fear for what it was was a big thing because a lot of people a lot of fearful people boast about their fearlessness. You know, a lot of people who are behaving in ways that that betray their anxiety act like they're really heroes of the faith. And I became conscious that some of the things I was doing revealed anxiety, not confidence. And so I tried to stop doing those things. And, and in that weird way where sometimes the the cart needs to get ahead of the horse by curbing those tendencies i found it easier to cultivate the the faith the real confidence and and it it took a lot of epiphanies you know it took a lot of um you know giving up on what in the past would have been hills to die on for me but uh, eventually i don't want to say like i got there but at least I'll say, you know, you guys know me 20 years later and I'm not nearly as bad as I used to be. <laughs> so however bad I seem now, I've improved since since that encounter. Praise God. <laughs> so this Sunday Dan is going to be preaching at Grace, and I'm really looking forward to this. It marks a certain point in our series on Zechariah where we finished looking at the night visions. We're about to go forward into Zechariah and look at some new kinds of oracles. But before we do that, we're going to take a week off from Zechariah, and Dan is going to bring a sermon to us from the New Testament. So, Dan, what text is it that you're going to be preaching on this Sunday at Grace? 
Yeah, so this Sunday at Grace, I'll be preaching on John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Okay, remind us what happens in those verses. John chapter 3 uh, is the is a passage where Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes to him at night and uh, is coming in praising him and saying, we know that you're from God because no one could do these signs. Uh, and Jesus immediately goes into spiritual conversation about the new birth. Uh, and the reality and the necessity of being born again. And, and through this conversation, um, Jesus is leading Nicodemus uh, to understand the love and grace of God in, in the Son of Man being lifted up and, and offering eternal life. Um, so the passage that we'll look at uh, is specifically about as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that he who believes in him might have eternal life. Great. So, okay, that's a New Testament passage where Jesus is referring to an event from the Old Testament. And what's interesting, so your sermon is not a continuation of this series on Zechariah. And yet, in John chapter 3, we've been referring to several times uh, Jesus' description of the Holy Spirit as being similar to the wind that goes back and forth. You don't know where it comes from and you feel it. And that's how the spirit is. That comes from John chapter three, a little bit before your passage. Of course, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. That's, that's right, right. I guess immediately after your passage. And so we've been thinking about ideas from John chapter three. It's interesting that the one that you're focused on is exactly that bridge where Jesus is referring back to the days of Moses. Let me ask, like, what is it about that passage in particular that you found compelling to want to preach on? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just that. It's that connection that Jesus is making uh, with the Old Testament, with this type that happens in Numbers chapter 21, uh, as Israel is out in the wilderness uh, and the, the serpents are there and lifting up this, this pole um, as a way of uh, physical salvation for the people. Uh, and Jesus is saying, just like that, so must the Son of Man. And so Jesus is making this direct parallel for us between an Old Testament passage and, and what he's doing in his ministry, in his life and death and resurrection. Yeah, I love that. I love the way that a, a real-life event, if if you had been there and, and were afflicted, you would have experienced it uh, firsthand, and yet that history becomes a sign that, that is just a way of understanding what Jesus has to do. And, and I, I suppose we should say it becomes a way of understanding after the fact, because I'm sure Nicodemus didn't have a clue right. exactly what he was being told in that moment. But uh, fascinating the way Jesus does that, taking history even to, to teach us about his work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've got a question as well. So we've been working through Zechariah slowly, and every week we build a little more context, and I can look back to the week previous and learn a little bit, see the broader picture. But when it's just a one-off sermon like this, obviously you can't give all the text around John and give all the, the context. So how should I think about preparing for a sermon like this? Um, if I know, you know, I'm listening to this podcast on Friday afternoon or whatever, I know that you're going to be preaching on this. 
how can I prepare for it without having to read the whole gospel of John or something? You know, what, how would you recommend people get ready? Yeah. Um, that's a great, so first I would look at the, the immediate context of the passage that we'll preach. Uh, it'll look at um, John chapter 3, 14 and 15. Uh, I would say bring in all of John chapter 3. Read John chapter 3 from where Jesus and Nicodemus are talking um, through really verse 18. But even beyond that, uh, we will be looking at a parallel in the Old Testament. So you can go back to the Old Testament. Go back to Numbers chapter 21. Um, verses four through nine and read about the serpent in the wilderness. Uh, and then if you're really feeling ambitious, flip back a few pages, look at the chapters that have happened in front of that. I mean, this, this narrative, this history of Israel as they're coming out and God has freed them from Egypt and brought them across the Red Sea and brought them to Mount Sinai and the thunderings and the, the Ten Commandments and the golden calf and the wandering in the wilderness and the cycle of grumbling and, uh, just just look at the the context of where has Israel been, where are they going, uh, and, and what's going on here. Because I think the more context you have, the better you'll be able to understand what's happening there. The better you'll be able to understand how that compares with what Jesus is doing. I think that's great advice. I mean, anytime you know in advance what is going to be preached on, it, it's really good to go and read that passage and read, you know, any cross-references that come up in the Bible. I, I'm fascinated, especially with Dan's idea of going back through the, the sort of re immediate re redemptive history. You mentioned the golden calf, and it was a light bulb in my head because the crazy thing about this, this serpent in the wilderness, this bronze serpent that is lifted up, is that it has an, a weird afterlife in the history of Israel, and it's one of those those little stories uh, people don't often know, but but it becomes an object of worship, like an idol, mm -hmm. and uh, they they call it Nehushtan, and people worship, and it, which is kind of understandable, like in the same way that they they make the golden calf, they don't make the golden calf thinking it's it's idolatrous, they think it represents the true God in some weird way, and uh, same thing here, they, this is. This is the serpent who saved us in the wilderness. And so a sort of shrine develops and eventually that idol has to be destroyed, which is such a strange thing that something God commanded to be made in order to save the people eventually falls into idolatry and has to be destroyed. I guess it's a, a weird lesson about the... Calvin, we call the idol making capacity of the human heart. Yeah, it seems like it's it's common to, to like you said, the idol factory that Calvin speaks about. Uh, we and it's not just Israel. It's clear for us as well that we tend to make idols out of good things, good gracious things that God has given us, and we tend to place them where they shouldn't be. Well, Dan, we're looking forward to your sermon this Sunday, and after. You preach it maybe we'll come back and talk a little bit more we don't want to spoil anything in advance but after the fact maybe we'll come and and talk about some of the points you make so that we can help people process as they think through that amazing passage and all those great connections awesome sounds good that's all the time we have for the commentary this week 
Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Cameron. And thanks to everyone who's listening. We hope you'll join us next time. And in the meantime, we hope you'll share the commentary with your friends. It's a great way to introduce people to grace. As always, you can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can find out more about us online at graceforsufalls.org. 